Welcome to the Alt Truth Podcast. It's the first podcast that we're doing. Uh, my name's Hamid. Hey, what's good? I'm Reese. Um, and so basically, the first podcast we're talking about is going to be on critical race theory. CRT. CRT. It's a bit of an interesting topic. Um, yeah. You might be thinking, who am I to be talking about CRT? I'm not going to lie, I'm nobody, but I'm just a student uh, in American Studies and History. Um, and that's kind of only qualification I have on this topic. Yeah, like for the next two years anyway, because you'll get a degree. And then um, that means you're allowed to talk about things apparently. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, and they're probably thinking like, who's this Reese guy and why is he talking about critical race theory as well? Um, I do have a degree. Uh-huh, Hamid. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Reese Williams. Um, I've got a degree in music, theatre and entertainment management. Um, a big part of my study was around race. It was around... Um, theories of race um looking at things like representation in the media um and a lot of my work was centered around um the work of a wonderful man by the name of Stuart Hall who was the leading cultural theorist in this country for a long time and um who was the founder of the Birmingham um Contemporary Center for Cultural Studies yeah that's pretty impressive yeah so I seem to look up Stuart Hall I actually looked him up he's amazing um and he's got a massive archive in London it's like a whole library dedicated to his work mm-hmm. and his study and stuff so yeah yeah I definitely have to look into it but um critical race theory in general um I'll probably define it as by Crenshaw et al's definition it proposes that white supremacy and racial power are maintained over time and in particular that the law may play a role in this process so basically that white supremacy white hegemony white dominance is preserved by institutional racism political racism um Hidden racism, almost um, a bit more discreet. Um, would you dispute that sort of definition? No, I'd, I'd say that's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate that there are systems in place um, at many um, levels, and the impact of that is often um, the suffering of people from black and minority ethnic communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important to mention Vanilla Silver's book, it's kind of helped me a lot when this is the podcast. Um, racist without racism i think it was published in 2003 but that might be really well off um but basically it talks about how racism is the root cause of the inhumane social economic psychological and political conditions of people of color when i say people of color or black people it's kind of like an umbrella term uh for people of an ethnic minority or a different race that's not anglo-saxon white protestant um if you were (laughs) Um, wasp, white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, anything that's not that really. Um, but yeah, using empirical data and plenty of analysis, Vanilla Silver, um, they found how people are misled to believe slavery is in the past, that the KKK is a thing of history. Well, we know from last week that it's not a thing of the past. Where, um, but also that we all believe that the Jim Crow era is over, where we don't have any of these segregation laws between black and white people. Well, that apartheid is, you know, was just just took place in South Africa and ended with Nelson Mandela coming out um, of prison. It's probably a lot more than that. And Vanilla Silver, they simply argue that racism has taken less obvious shape than simply using the N word. Um, they also argue, interestingly, that the treatment of black people nowadays could be worse than it was hundred years ago. So that's one yeah, thing. it's a it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because, like you say, we think of. Um, we think of racism as the N-word. We think of racism as 
people not being able to drink from a particular water fountain or go to a toilet in a particular place. We think of, in the British context, we think of no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. Mm. And we think of, you know, Enoch Powell's um, (laughs) famous speech. And... Conservative MP. Yep. And actually, in in the present day at least, um, racism is a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more particular. It's a lot more... um, What's the word I'm looking for? More coded, a lot more... Do you say cunning? Would you say it's more cunning? Yeah. In a way. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, racism happens in so many levels. Um, I think people are starting to train themselves to hold their thoughts and save them for home. Mm. Go home, in a closet, be racist, come back. Because I remember, like, you know, even growing up in primary school, a lot of people that, you know, they used to talk about how their parents expressed racist views at home. Yeah. But didn't actually know anything any better. Um, It's interesting. But um, It is, and I think in the last week alone... Um, we're seeing a lot in terms of there's, there's a quote that I read when I was doing my dissertation um, and it was a quote um, Dr. Sarita Malik who is a again another cultural theorist and she uh, in particular looks at the media and the portrayal of black and minority ethnic people within the media mm-hmm. um, there was a quote and I think she was quoting somebody else so maybe in our notes I'll, I'll get the exact quote um, of the person who said this but what um, Dr. Sarita Malik um, commented in this particular um, chapter of the book that I was reading, she said that an active tenet of racist ideology is this idea that we forget. Mm. You know, there's, there's there's no there's no acknowledgement that this thing has happened. There's no apology. Mm-hmm. There's no offer of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. We just say that was our grandparents. That was our parents. Let's all move on. Yeah, <clears throat> like I'm South Asian. Like I always believe that Britain should apologise to India and to Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Um, <clears throat> but like that's a topic for a different day. Yeah, yeah we should I, have a, a next a next uh, podcast, shouldn't we, on reparations and stuff pro- like that? Probably, way. probably should. Oh, that was a but, bad word. Uh, I said reparations is a bad word. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I think racism now is like there are a lot many more racists that are just closet racists now. Whereas mm. before they were like, I've been hearing at university a closet conservative, somebody who's was conservative, but you know they don't really shout about it. Mm. Um, understandably so. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, I think a lot of closet racism. I think um, the main reason I want to talk about it was in 2010, Eric Holder, uh, who was the US, U.S. Attorney General, he said that, uh, and I quote, "Though race-related issues continue to occupy a significant portion of our political discussion, and though there remain many unresolved racial issues in this nation, we average Americans, I'm not American, uh, simply need to talk about it more." Um, and yeah, like I think he's got a point. We do need to talk about it more. We need to discuss it more. Um, there's almost like an uneasiness when we talk about racism or the N word. It's almost this. Um, oh God, what am I saying? What am I saying? Um, so I think yeah, it needs a bit more awareness. So, so do you think almost that people are afraid? Or I'm not even afraid. They're so uncomfortable with even having the conversation. Yeah. That we're not progressing as we should do. Like I definitely think a lot of people are ignorant, and for them, ignorance is bliss. So when a topic comes up, but they don't want to come across as ignorant. Hmm. I think that's possibly, you know, that's just my own opinion and probably is a load of rubbish. But Hmm. that's just what I think. But there were two high-profile legal cases in America that really um, made talks about um, race a big issue in the post-Cold War world. Hmm. Because obviously when, in the Cold War, race was an issue, but it was an issue for different reasons. Um, The only reason why so many people got rights in America during the Cold War was basically so they looked better in the third world. Yep. Um, to the third world countries 
um, <clears throat> neutral countries or uh, look at America because America were going around like you know where where um, this great free country and then you know a third world country would turn around and be like oh hello mate you're not even allowed to go with other shit exactly, exactly. <laughs> like you know if i'm black i'm I'm pretty messed up in that country but yeah so yeah they kind of changed a lot of propaganda purposes then post-cold war world came and it was kind of like a little bit of a release <laughs> yeah it. and then um but then you had 1992 a very infamous beating by the la police on uh rodney king in yep. 1992 then, yeah, that letter to the what's rights, right? Mm-hmm. And then you had 1994, OJ Simpson, the American footballer, acquitted for killing his wife in 1994. Mm. And also, don't forget the the good old fist, um, not long before that as well. Yep. So, there were things like that, that kind of high-profile cases that... Um, Changed the course of race relations, yeah. essentially. Yeah, definitely did. And probably why we're having this topic um, and this conversation today, if anything. Mm. And I think it's important rec- that we recognise that these things play a significant part, so much so that I was even born in 1992. But yeah, I know it affects me massively. Yep. Um, Absolutely. And I think just for the... I mean, there was a documentary that I saw, or um, rather like, a, um, you know, those end-of-year reviews on when they say, mm-hmm. oh, most significant moments of the 20th, 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, O.G. Simpson's acquittal. Was mm-hmm. in, the, in the top 10. This is like a Channel 4. Mad. Really? Channel 4 list, yeah. What else is on the list, just to compare it? Um, what else is on there? <clears throat> um, there was um, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. I did not have relations with that woman. <laughs> That's the one of the best quotes in the century, if anything. Yeah. Obviously, the man walking on the moon. Yeah. Um, Princess Diana. So it's with those... Yeah, it's, it, was, it, it was considered up there with, with these things. And um, the, kind of the commentary around it was that every single person in America was tuned into it you know it became a drama they didn't need to watch Dallas they didn't need to tune into NFL that was like that was the thing yeah yeah that that's pretty bad when you think about it but it probably is true and what is really interesting about this case is that it felt almost or it feels kind of looking back from the outside again I was probably five at the time and I had no clue who OJ Simpson was I'm going to show you that Mm -hmm. Um, but looking back on it and looking at the commentary and the discourse around it, it seems that um, it was so high profile, the OJ case was so notorious that it polarised opinion in such a way that the black people wanted him to be acquitted. Whether he was guilty or not, they did not care. He just needed to be acquitted. And almost, almost as if the white folk were like, I don't care if he's innocent, he needs to be found guilty. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That, that is... Yeah, I can, I can agree with you on that one. <clears throat> but generally, I wanted to talk... Um, a bit about whiteness itself, I think, you know, it's constructed as a standard of beauty, purity, innocence, safety, which you can see a lot in the way um, people are advertised, um, yep. the way we represent, you know, when we, see, when we think of white, we think of heaven automatically. Purity, all that kind of Do you know what I mean? Stuff, yeah. Like, it's just, it's just kind of unconscious. But first, I really do want to talk about um, the flaws in critical race theory itself. Yeah. Um, like, as a semi-Marxist, I kind of think, that you need to consider stuff like class. Mm. I don't think, again, I think saying critical race theory, I just think is a bit a bit too easy. Um, mm. I'd I, I definitely go along with that. Um, again, Stuart Hall, I mentioned him at the start of this. Mm-hmm. Stuart Hall did this amazing piece of research um, and he was looking at what is blackness, you know, as an identity. Mm-hmm. And basically what he concluded was um, blackness isn't one unique thing. There's no such thing as a black hegemony. There's no such thing as a unique black identity mm-hmm. um, simply because of displacement 
if you look at um you know definitely within Europe if you look at within the Americas mm-hmm. you know we didn't originate in these places yeah you know we originated in Africa, Africa but because yeah. of um forced migration also known as slavery um <laughs> you know we we're in different places now what mm. that means is our experience isn't an experience that's rooted in African tradition um in itself it means that it's not rooted in European experience in itself. It's not rooted in uh, North American or South American experience in itself. Mm-hmm. It's so broad. It's so, um, yeah, it's so cultured that to say being black is having this particular characteristic, it's, mm-hmm. it's not accurate to say that. You can't say a black person is someone who speaks like this. A black person is someone who uses words like this. A black person is someone who feels like this. Good point. There's, 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 there's very few unifying features. Comes back to Old Testament, we all bleed the same, don't we? Yeah. Um, this is it. But yeah, like, another thing I want to say, like, um, one writer, Cole, he, he challenges, I think he's a social anthropologist, Yeah. he um, challenges critical race theories in that, you know, it should include a critique of capitalism in general, mm. um, that this sort of white dominance use race and class-based inequalities Yep. to kind of um, make themselves more powerful. Like, I think a really good example of it was Benefit Street. Yeah, um, absolutely. Of how you can see how, like, they're all poor. Like, do you honestly see somebody growing out of that street becoming the next prime minister? Not really. It's not going to happen. Like, I love, love what's her name, Big D, whatever her name was. Yeah. But, like, I'm sorry, love. Like, the systems are set up against you. Mm. And like, that's not I, because of your race, that's because of your class. Exactly. And, like, you, you, you're kind of, like, there's a phrase like if I can I don't know how true it is, but it sounds pretty true. Um, the biggest indicator whether you die poor or die rich is if you are born rich or born poor. Yeah. So it's kind of like yeah. So I think talking about class mm. and economics in general is a big thing. I, I definitely go along with that, and I think that you know, it, it, class is definitely a way that um, inequalities are mm-hmm. maintained. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because of again the modern world that we live in there's a lot more evidence of people transcending the mm-hmm. race um, and kind of bridging that gap. But class still holds back yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, you definitely need analysis of both race <coughs> and class, like an intersection between the two. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of relations between the two, you know, depending on what ratio, it depends how rich you're going to be, but it's not always the case. Um, like, I think you do need to analyse both race and class to kind of get a better grasp an understanding on to why there's an oppression of um, an oppression going on of, towards other people, people who are poor or people of colour. So mm. I think that's important. Um, but yeah, they're just kind of like the flaws of critical race theory in general. Anything else you might want to add? No, I think, yeah, I, I do think we need to open up the conversation to, to a broader range of, of points. I think race is absolutely essential. I do believe it's a central tenet, mm-hmm. but I believe that it crosses over into so many other things. Again, gender, Mm-hmm. Race, race and gender, uh, race and sexuality. Yeah, I think like, race and economics, race and. I think yeah. one reason why though, like I know this, this is like more of a political critical race theory, and why it's like why I think it's you know it's so true, but I think like when it comes down to something like race, I think people ignore it really easily. They ignore stuff like a president's personal opinion. Mm. Like, we always look back in history and think, oh, America did such and such because of their economic advantage. Yes and no. Like, if you boil it down to it, there was a bloke who was president who did something because he wanted to. Mm. Like, yet, 
we are taught to write America did this because of such and such a reason. But really, like, you got to look at the actual personal feelings. And if your personal feelings are racist, sexist, homophobic, you know, anti any sort of group of people, that's going to affect decisions for the entire country. Remember Nixon, I don't think it's in his diary, but he wrote, um, he became allies with Pakistan rather than India when he was president. Um, I mean, Nixon's a fraud, we all know that. But he um, he famously called, I think it was India Prime Minister, a bitch. Wow. Which is like, I think it was privately, but like, that kind of showed that he had a sexist mindset. Yep. And but I would argue that his sexism is what made him an ally of Pakistan rather than India. Because yeah. Pakistan just came across as a more masculine country. Yep. You know, didn't have a female prime minister. Mm. I mean, um, they did eventually, Benazir Bhutto. Um, but at the time, they seemed very masculine. Um, so, yeah. Wow. like So, stuff like that, like personal feelings, I feel like they need to be considered much more. Yeah. But, but interestingly, um, where do our personal feelings come from? If not from the experiences of our parents, even if it's unconsciously. Mm-hmm. I believe we definitely have the views that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Because before was our parents potentially potentially mm-hmm. thought the way, you know think in the same way that we think mm-hmm. or because we went to a particular school mm-hmm. we're around a particular group of people we lived in a particular area you know mm-hmm. that's that's what informs our views um and i think that's what goes to the heart of um critical race theory as well is that it's not often um a case of somebody who's ahead of an institution saying i don't like black people let's make sure we lock them up at a disproportionate rate. Yeah. Let's make sure we stop them for every single traffic infringement. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that at the point of arrest, there's not an arrest. There's a mm-hmm. cardiac arrest. It's not, a, It's not. let's take them to the station. Yeah. However, what it is a case of is, you know, the head of the police looks and sounds like and talks like the person that was the head of police before him and before him and before him and however many times removed. And mm-hmm. so what you have is an unconscious way of doing things. And, you know, we talk about culture and the beauty of culture uh, is also the danger of culture. The beauty of culture is this is how things are done around here. That's beautiful. The danger of culture is this is how things are done around here. You know what I'm saying? That land, that particular land. Like, it's kind of scary to think, but like I say, it's not that, we don't have to go far back in history to find such open racism like mm. we're only a couple of generations away from one of the world's most despicable slave trades yep like only a couple of generations absolutely like our grandparents grandparents bang there we are yeah, I think, and you're in the middle of racism I think my grand my grand missed slavery by 23 years really sorry my grand's my grand's mother missed grand, slavery 23 by, years. by 23 years well there you go so two generations away really if you think about it mm. um, that, that's quite tragic um, quite sad yes um, but like in terms of like Labels and wise, like I feel like when I'm talking about how whiteness is about purity thing, mm. <clears throat> it's what I find really interesting is how people are black or white. Mm. If you're black, if you you know you kind of lump together. I mean, yeah. you you know you, you can't be white. You're just black, right? Get out. You're not you're not part of that category of white. That's you it. You could be ninety nine percent white, one percent black. You're right. You're not white. I'm sorry. You're black. Yeah, that goes back to slavery. How did measure people? Um, the measure slaves. Um, in, in in fractions, literally, someone's a quadroon, someone's an octoon. Yeah, and, and that would determine, you know, what jobs you're gonna do there was, as a slave. There's a very famous um, French um, or a person writer called Gobineau, infamous, I should say. Mm. He um, talks about 
scientific racism. Yep. Kind of trying to use science to prove that white people are superior mm-hmm. and how you have 1% blackness is not good. Yep. To reduce crossbreeding, this, that, the other. Um, so, yeah. eugenics. So, yeah. he's basically a, an early writer on eugenics. Yeah, pretty much. You believe the Aryan race, surprise, surprise, are superior. And, mm. like, um, you'd be surprised how many other people who we in society revere felt the same way. Yeah. Lincoln described black people as imbeciles. Yeah, he would, people think he was like, you know, a really friendly pair of black people. No, it wasn't actually really. He was still pretty racist. He was great at economics. He just understood how money works and that if he could find a way, you know, to make the oppression of black people more profitable again, mm-hmm. then he'd do that. That, yeah. was, that was more favourable to the current time, system. Yeah, because a lot of slaves were... Um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It's true. Yeah, so I get, So you come back to the point, we did take a little bit of a, a diversion there. So we're talking about labels. Um, and you're absolutely right in that I guess it all falls under this banner of um, otherness, mm-hmm. this politics of otherness, and that's something that's really fascinating mm-hmm. me at the moment because, like you say, you know, we talk about people being mixed race or being mm-hmm. dual heritage or, you know, further back we'd say stuff like half-caste. Mm-hmm. And all of those categories are measured against whiteness. Yeah. Whiteness being like the uh, the pinnacle, the ideal, the idealistic even. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's really interesting. I think that speaks volumes of the society that we live in. Like, yeah. I mean, Spickard, 1992, he said, and I quote, mixed persons should not be regarded as black or white, but black and white. Like, mm. I kind of, like, I really agree with that sentiment, but with us label business, like, they say, oh, we're open to diversity, we're not lumping black people together. You know, the census has British Pakistani on it, it has British Indian on it, what more do you want? Um, mm. But like, I don't think that's enough, because I think... At the end of the day, you, you, we need a drastic, a radical uh, change a shift, yeah. in um, attitudes across the board in every country, probably. Yeah. Like, there's no... I can't look at a country now and say, oh, a really brilliant example. Like, we all talk about how the West is better than the East, or the East is better than the West, and yada, yada, yada. But do you know what? Both of them just bad as each other. Yeah. I, I don't see where a country where I feel like, oh, they've got... They've got head. it right. They've got it right, yeah. They've got it bang on, well done to yeah. them. I don't really see that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting, because I think that stems down to the fact that we've all got prejudices. Mm-hmm. I'll admit to that, I've got my prejudices. You've got your prejudices. Every yeah. single person on the face of this earth has got their own prejudices. Mm-hmm. However, it's... <clears throat> if Okay, I have a prejudice against you, Hamid. Mm-hmm. Yeah? You're a young Asian man. Mm. I'm a young black man. I'm not in a position of leadership. Generally speaking, I do not have the power to influence your life in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Me not liking you, other than the fact that we work on the same project together, will not impact your life in any particular meaningful way. Yeah. Me not liking you, you're not going to lose sleep over it. You're not going to think, oh no, I can't pay the bills this month because Reese doesn't like me. I'd be pretty good if you didn't like me. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm aside, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and a meaningful impact of your life, it probably wouldn't measure on a scale if it was a scale of it. Like, in what way would Reese not liking me impact on my life? However, if we were to shift it and say, I'm a policymaker, I'm a judge, I'm a police officer, I'm a doctor, I am a... And many other things, yeah? Do you think doctors have their prejudices? Like yeah, doctors like, yeah. of course they do. Yeah, and I've I've seen that in practice. You know, really? my dad before he passed away, I told you he had some strokes a couple of years mm. ago. It's about six year, six years ago, yeah, two thousand and eleven, um, and so he he took ill at work, 
and obviously his colleagues called for an ambulance and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the first, <clears throat> the first question that the paramedics asked when they got to my dad's office was, "What drugs have you taken?" Oh yeah. Not not they didn't ask. Yeah. Uh, make it clear they weren't asking about what medicine he's on. They were asking, "What drugs have you taken?" And my col- my dad's colleagues were like, "Wait, firstly, is it an appropriate question? Number two, he's at work. Like, who who mentors young people and he's at work? high? come on now, like." Yeah. Mad. And I absolutely can guarantee you if my dad was white, that question would not have been asked. The question would have been, what's wrong? How yeah, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. I like to think those those sort of people out there are, are limited. Yeah. I hope so, anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean... That... Like I was, I was yeah. in hospital not too long ago. I was, yeah. I was looked after. Yeah. All right. Really I think well. 99% of stuff that I came across was like, I love you guys a bit. So I don't really feel like any... Yeah. So only one point that I feel like I met a support worker who was like this solid, solid like racist. Yeah, she was. She was saying she didn't even realize she was racist. She was saying stuff like, um, "Take back our country." I was like, "Is she even realize that was racist?" And I just, I just had to lie there in bed, unable to move. Like, yeah, you have to wipe my ass now. So I'm gonna take a massive. I'm gonna take a massive dump. I'm just gonna let loose. You're gonna wash it. You're gonna take a glove off and regret it. Like I'm gonna, yeah. But oh, Lord. obviously, you try to talk to that person, but then um, obviously, so you try to open a discussion with somebody. They put their fingers in your ears and shout la 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 la. Yeah, can't hear you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, 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 yeah so it was. Mm. It was one of them. Um, <coughs> no, it's, it's interesting stuff. But that, that's that sort of ignorance or that sort of yeah. not listening to it. it mm. It's frustrating, and that's what makes um, white dominance. Um, much greater, mm. in my opinion. Um, like white privilege at the moment, it seems invisible. Like you can't actually see it. They can't say, "Bang, there it is." I can see it. It's like it's not like a three D um, thing. It's not a, a matter. It's a full prism, isn't it? It's a, yeah. It's, it's a wide scope of things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and people benefit from it. Like there are people who are pure white or whatever they are. We call them. They benefit from it, but they didn't realize they benefit from benefit from it. Mm. They don't actually. Ben- they don't. They don't realize how lucky they are. I think like, yeah. we take it for granted, kind of thing. Mm. And like that, that's bad because then, then it means they're ignorant to the actual situation itself, and that people out there are suffering and not getting the same opportunities as them. This is it, and I think uh, this is really interesting. I was thinking of this. this is something I've been thinking about uh, for a while is that it's the people that are oblivious who need to be a part of the conversation more than those people who have got a concrete view but in favour of or against. It's the people who are oblivious, in my opinion, mm. are the people that make the situation worse. I agree. Because I agree. if you're oblivious to it, like... You're not taking sides or you're not becoming an ally. Yeah. Or you're and not even at least conning a spade. You're just spade. accepting it the way it is. Yeah. And in, in a sense, indifference. Mm. And that's cool. But again, you see what I said before? Exactly indifference, but that's what culture does. Culture mm-hmm. does that. Culture is about, here's the way things have done way things are done this is the way things have always been and I don't like change I'm comfortable with how things are because I'm at the other, I'm, I'm, I'm eating at the table I'm not the person under the table looking for the crumbs I mean who likes change let's be honest who genuinely likes change it's tough it's it, cumbersome even even at the, the, the smallest most insignificant levels you know if our favourite sweets change colour of packet we're like yeah what about the different ones do you know what yeah. I mean? Pringle, Pringles changed the recipe a couple of months ago and I was like, oh, like a year ago and I was Did like, eh, it doesn't taste the same. Cadbury went became American, it was like... Exactly, it's like, what is this? We don't... <laughs> I, I hate this chocolate now, yeah. it's disgusting. We don't, we don't like change, chocolate, do you know what yeah. I mean? Alex Ferguson left Manchester United. We all know how that ended. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, 
it's, been, it's, been, it's been a tough, exactly my idea. <laughs> it's been a tough couple of years, do you know what I mean? But, I mean, jokes aside, things, we don't like change. We're not comfortable with change. Mm. And it's that, it's those people in that middle ground who it doesn't impact them in such a way that they need to care, that need to be brought into that conversation. Yeah, like there's this very beautiful quote. Um, you probably know me well enough to know which quote I'm about to spit out. Mm. But I love it. Ellie Rietzel, Holocaust survivor, passed away in 2016. Um, he said, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. That's right. So it... Because mm. exactly, hate, hate at least is an emotion. Hate is... Hate is energy channelled in some sort of way. Indifference. You can't mm-hmm. do anything with indifference. Indifference is, I care so little, I don't care. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> it is really that... You know, wow. the pinnacle of, like, the problem I'm almost... Of ignorance. It's, it's sad, it's really is sad. But then, you have mainstream media, and you can't always blame the person, because sometimes, you know, I think mainstream media, I don't want to just say... That's for. I don't just want to say, oh, media is bad, because that's such a lazy statement. Of course There's so much media out there, that's great. Yeah. This podcast is media, it's brilliant. Yeah. Maybe not, but still. no, no, yeah, but it's, it's communication. It, you know yeah. I mean? But mainstream media in general, like, it doesn't really help. Mm. And like, just a simple Google search can find you so much stuff that's just unbelievably horrible. Mm. Like, really horrible. Um, like, we all know, like, well, I say we all know, mm. a lot of people won't know, but I think it's fair to say that black people have been portrayed as violent. Lazy, yes. irresponsible, drug dealers, gun holders, drug yeah, everything. yeah, gang related thugs. Absolutely, I'm I'm going to come on to that point in a second, but I'm going to I'm going to take us a step back. So there's a a writer on again on culture and on sociology called Richard Dyer, and Richard Dyer says not how, Ali Dyer, huh? not Ali Dyer, no Richie Dyer, not, Richard Dyer, Richard not not the Southampton player. All right, no, okay. not, not Ali Dyer, not Ali Dyer who blabbed it into. Uh, <laughs> He, he pretended that he was uh, George Ware's cousin. No, it's I not him. Um, great. <laughs> That's a great little interjection. So uh, Richard Dyer, um, he is a writer on sociology, as I was saying, and is a really interesting quote that he has, which basically says, how a group of people are treated totally depends on how they are seen. Mm. And he talks about the media's role in doing that and how television and the news uh, media are essential in how the nation tells its story about itself and about the people that are a part of it. So, you know, if we're looking at the impact of media on how people are treated and how people are seen, if we're talking here, now you're saying in this 2011 study talking about um, the way that, you know, black people are represented and how, you know, we're presented as drug dealers, we're presented as, as athletes or presented as, um, as, as baby fathers, mm-hmm. um, we're presented in a voyeuristic way, a sexualized mm-hmm. context often. Is it any wonder that there's so much racism existing in the world. Because if they're the only images you ever see in mm. the mainstream media, and as Richard Dyer is saying, it, it, um, the way that we see people impacts directly on the way that we treat them. Mm. Is it any wonder? Not really. Because, like, I, I, I've experienced it. Like, I've come to university, mm. right? And I um, went there. And a lot of people came from backgrounds of which they'd never come across somebody of my look. Mm. South Asian yeah. <laughs> or across, came across somebody who was 18, 19 years old and didn't drink alcohol wow they were like what? it's alien you're yeah alien. You, you've <laughs> never drank alcohol like um, 
like not willingly. <laughs> yeah, but th- like for them, it's just like such a surprise. Mm. But that's just like that's not their fault, almost. No, is it really it's their not, fault? It's their experience. And, and I, like I, again, I'm gonna post after this. We'll post in the notes for the uh, podcast. There's a book that people should look up uh, by Dr. Sarita Malik, and this book, uh, I think it's called Representing Black Britain, and it tells a whole history um, of um, black mainstream media, particularly television and film, mm-hmm. and how that has portrayed black and minority ethnic people. So there's a really interesting um, really interesting anecdote in there, and it talks about how back in the 1950s, um, obviously during the Windrush generation, so the Windrush were the, the big influx of uh, people from the Caribbean coming to the country mm-hmm. following the Second World War, but obviously we're part of the Commonwealth, or we need help repairing the country. Obviously it's well documented, the uh, oppression that um, this generation of people suffered. But anyway, there was a particular... Um, a TV show that was presented as social realism so it's presented as a documentary and that everything that's being presented in here is factual mm-hmm. and it basically um, gave birth to a stereotype a, a stereotypical view that black people were so uncivilised that to order a drink at a bar they banged their fist on the bar and yeah. she spoke about how presenting it in that context made a lot of people actually have that viewpoint also spoke um, in great deal about the you know, the racial trope of the black person as a drug dealer. Um, he spoke about Linford Christie and how he was sexualized and how when he was doing, you know, really well in athletics, mm-hmm. all people wanted to talk about was his lunchbox. Mm. So they wanted to talk about the size of his dick. Do you know what I mean? Not actually, this guy's doing amazing things. This guy's, I mean, we found out later that he'd taken Nandrel on the ship, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, a whole, that's a different story. We're not going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think, yeah. If, if those are the images that we see of black men and, and black people in particular, then... Mm-hmm. But, like, in Britain, I don't think it's as bad as it is in America. In America, you have thought of how black people are purposely denied loans and this, that, the other. That's actually not a really interesting thing. Airbnb, mm. a lot of us may have used that, a lot of us may have not. Mm. Um, people that don't know what Airbnb is. Um, basically, um, you've got a property, you rent it out. Through this Airbnb surface, basically. That's Pretty kind much. of how it works, yeah. And yeah, and like, there's actually a significant evidence of racial profiling at Airbnb. But mm. basically, you have to approve the person you're renting your flat out to, basically. And yep. you see a picture of that person. Yep. And they found that they get the, well, I say they, I forgot who did the study. Mm. I think it was like New York Times or something. Mm. Um, and they found that if you were black, I think you, you were. Less likely to be able to. A lot less likely. I think it was 66% less likely to be accepted and wow. and like that kind of hit me quite hard as like mm. that's just like living proof that people are racist mm. and that's just a really good example Not a good, it's a bad thing but it's a good example mm. this problem in general um, and then in, there was a 2011 study you can find this in a Guardian article mm-hmm. um, if you can simple Google search mm-hmm. um, but it was basically by the op- opportunity agenda yeah, and it talks about media representations and impact on the lives of black men and boys. Mm. And it said negative mass media portrayals were strongly linked with lower life expectations among black men, and that upsets me because then it means hmm. people are internalizing what they see on TV. Even if you're black, you internalize that and you think that's what you are. Self actualization. Yeah, you, yeah. You, it becomes re- what you see on TV. Even if you're black, it becomes real. TV. Because your reality. That, and that's like, and then you don't see yourself becoming 
much so, different. So when Barack Obama became president from 2008, mm. like, I, I get the feeling that aspirations of black people and ethnic yes. minorities... Magnified tenfold, hundredfold. Yeah, it, and I feel like the magnitude... Still, I don't feel... I feel like the magnitude of that election is still sinking in. Yeah. Especially with Donald Trump coming in. Jesus, you know... Jesus looks like Barack Obama now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They were like, oh, Barack Obama, bring that guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, it's No, it's really, really, really interesting. It's really interesting um, in, in, in that. But that same study that by the Opportunity Agenda, they found how there's an overall underrepresentation of people of colour, uh, talking head experts, luxury mm. item endorsers and adverts, and... Uh, relatable characters with fully developed backgrounds in fiction shows and films. Absolutely. What's interesting, right? So the last couple of uh, elections um, in Britain, yeah, but that's like uh, our uh, last couple of votes. So we obviously had the referendum, the EU referendum, the general election, or the past two general elections. Not to disrespect Dizzy Rascal, they had Dizzy Rascal on a political affairs show debating about the state of the country. And I'm not saying that he's not a politically charged person. I'm not saying that he's mm-hmm. not in tune with what's happening. Because um, I do think he's a very intelligent young man. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Shout out to Dizzy Rascal. Um, but I mean, where are the where are the black intellectuals? Because I can I can name you black intellectuals from my very own community who yeah. are qualified to sit on a panel and speak about these things. You know, where was in that instance? You know, where are your Linford Sweeney's? Do you get what I'm saying? Where are you in, in that context? Where are your Darkest House? Darkest House is still alive at this point. Mm-hmm. There are so many more intelligent articulate people that should be presenting as heads and as experts mm-hmm. yet they were missed out from the conversation and again it goes back to what uh, Sarita Malik was saying um, in this book um, that's talking about representing Britain and representation mm-hmm. and she says that again this is another way that we perpetuate this myth of black people as uneducated and uninspired by putting you know um, somebody who's white who's extremely educated is very articulate, up against any Joe blogs in the street, pretty much. You know what I'm saying? It's it's very deliberate. It's very, very deliberate. Yet, thankfully, what we've seen the last couple of times around, we have seen people like Akala, who, you know, is absolutely amazing. I think for me... Um, he's one of the best speakers out there. Right absolutely. Now. I think for me, he's the most important black intellectual since Stuart Hall. And that, I don't say that lightly. I think he's the most important, and I'll say it again, the most important black intellectual the UK has had since Stuart Hall. Just UK or globally? I think definitely potentially, yeah, the potential is for that to be global, but I think in this particular context, definitely within the UK. I mean, I don't know how he's perceived outside of our, you know, the, the, the discourse here in the UK, um, but definitely within the context of the UK, UK politics, he's the most important black intellectual since Stuart Hall for me. You're going to America next week, find out. Yeah, not um, next week, in two days. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're all jealous. Mm. You're going to the United Snakes. Yeah, yeah, United Snakes of America. Brother, uh, America, uh, also known as America KKK. Yeah, America KKK. Yeah, yeah. Land of the thief. There you go. Um, but yeah, shout out to our American people. Yeah, we love you too. We love the people. Of America, just, just not your president. <laughs> there you go. Actually, we love him too. Um, but too many stories like associate black men with. Interactive problems, interactable mm. problems. Um, also, going back before about um, relatable characters with fully developed backgrounds in fiction shows. Mm. You told me this, mm. James Bond director, mm. which director it was that said there couldn't be a black James Bond. Was it Sam Mendes or was it somebody else? 
Was it a director who said it? Who was it? I know Roger, Roger Moore said it. Roger Moore said it? Roger, it was Roger Moore. Ah, uh, right. Roger Moore, said, Roger Moore said that um, Idris Elba is not British enough to be James Bond. Not black, not white enough. Effectively, that's what he said. And that's, again, the, the, the conversation's coming full circle. We mentioned before about the context of racism being slightly different. Mm-hmm. The ways that we carry out racism are slightly different. The words that we use, the way that we put it across. Effectively, mm-hmm. what he's saying is that Idris Elba is too black. He's not white enough. He's too other. Again, politics of otherness. Right. Another thing about mainstream media, moving uh, swiftly on. In 2012, a professor of political sciences, um, Professor Dawn, at the College of Worcester in Ohio, um, analysed images that ran with with 474 domestic US poverty related stories in Time, Newsweek and US News and World Report from 1992 to 2010. So it's a long period, so that's an 18 year period, yeah? Like, it's basically my lifetime, <laughs> almost. Like literally yeah. 1992, 2010, it, it's very close to my existence. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but in the images that run alongside those stories in print, black people were overrepresented appearing in more than half of the images, even though they only made up a quarter of people existing below the poverty line during that time. So that means they've, they've doubled what it mm. looks like. They've more than doubled it. They've made it look like black people are poor and they've, they've doubled it massively. Wow. And like, again, it's just a really obvious, uh, but yet scary statistic. It is. And like, we don't think of it when we see like, we, we don't think of it at the forefront of our consciousness, but unconsciously we sink it in. Mm. And do you think young young people specifically, I mean, you work with young people mm. a lot, but do you think young people can almost internalise and act out what they see of black people in the media? Definitely. I definitely, I definitely think it's possible. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen, <clears throat> you know... And again, you know, we talk about um, self-fulfilling prophecy or, or prophecies being fulfilled, so... Growing up, a lot of me um, and my peers, um, young black men like me, were told you're never going to amount to anything. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of young people, again, a lot of these young people who those those comments were made to, a lot of my friends growing up, I wouldn't say lived that out, because I, I, I do think that every single person on the face of this earth has got a value and got a worth, but a lot of the young people that those things were said to carried out those kind of things. They became drug dealers, they became mm. gangsters, they, you know, there's, there's people who I grew up with who are doing life sentences right now or, you know, um, are doing sentences that have no number because it's about the public interest, you know, public safety, IP, they want IPP and stuff. Um, mm. And so, the the result of that is, yeah, it, it, it can happen but at the same time, I've also seen, you know, in the same period of time, a great deal of people like myself who have almost used that negative perception of them on that um mm. negative forecast almost as a as a springboard you know that thing of if you tell someone they can't do something they do everything in their power to, to prove you otherwise mm. so yeah i think it swings both ways yeah like you see in movies as well though mm. of clear examples mm. of how black people are made to seem in mm. a certain way like Big Bang Theory the Indian guy is always like the one that nobody the, the weirdo is the yep. Indian guy um, you've got like for instance um, 
how I couldn't see anybody mm. other than Samuel L. Jackson. I couldn't see a white person playing a Samuel, a stereotypical Samuel L. Jackson role of bad yeah. motherfucker. Yeah. Like I can't see any. I can't see a white person. I can't see that catchphrase belonging mm. to a very white person unless they were taking a piss, like Ali G. Yeah. Like, I can't. I just can't see it. Um. Yeah. Like, there was a 2001 film, Training Day. Yep, which I'm just getting some stuff upon. Training Day is one of my favourite films. Yeah. Really, really amazing film. Great. Amazing you, film. You, you might as well take this topic. You might as well talk about what to say. You know yeah, what so I need uh, Training Day, um, film directed by Anton Farquhar, um, who, again, is a really prominent African-American um, film director. And a beautiful film. Um, Denzel Washington, or beautiful, depending on <laughs> what you think of the film. Obviously. It's a good film. Yeah. It's a good film. Yeah, so it's um, Denzel Washington playing the lead. Um, of a dirty officer, basically, in, in the ends, in, mm. um, in LA, I believe, uh, in the ends. And Training Day, as the title suggests, is about him training another rookie officer who's played by Ethan Hawke. And basically, the character that uh, Denzel Washington plays, uh, Alonzo, is a despicable piece of work, um, Alonzo Harris. He's very much a protagonist. He's crooked. He can be bri- he can be bribed. He can be mm-hmm. influenced. He steals. He he murders. He does everything that a law enforcement officer is not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, he buys drugs. He sells drugs. And you know, there's a great deal of conflict in the film as Ethan Hawke, the character he plays, um, his white partner, is basically trying to get him to see his error of his ways. You know, he, he's wrestling against that, and then you know, yeah. So it depicts it depicts Denzel Washington as a black man in mm-hmm. a really negative light and it depicts that whole community as a, a very vicious community. But what I would say, I'm trying to find the name of the person, um, two things I would say is that this film is um, loosely, um, it's not quite true, but it's the character that Denzel Washington plays is a real police officer um, who was done for corruption. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find um, the name of the person um, but basically, um, this office actually looks, not even looks, he has similar characteristics to the character that Denzel plays. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they cast Denzel in that role. Um, mm. I don't think the officer was black, but the officer was was, was uh, of dual heritage, uh, of mixed race. And um, Wasn't pure white then, was he? No. Was exactly that, wasn't so. Aryan, politics, hair, politics of otherness. Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. Um, like... Mm. White hegemony, it, it's a lot to do with the subjugation and the inhumane conditions of people of colour, yep. um, or poor people in general. And there's that, there's a very infamous book, 2010, I think it was, only a few years ago, mm. probably a little bit earlier than that, might be 96, mm. so it might be confusing with something. But there's a book called The Bell Curve mm. by Herrnstein and Charles Murray, and they're actually psychologists, I yep. think. So, but they basically write a scientifically racist book that white people are superior, expanding on... Gabino's work from a couple of centuries ago, right? Which is kind of like a long time ago, um, but ideologically, it's normalized whiteness, putting it like in this sort of place where it's seen as special and it just misrepresenting black people in the media consistently. Mm-hmm. And then there's people that follow that colorblind sort of path where they say that sort of book leads to people saying stuff like. I don't see, I don't see race, mm. I don't see colour, um, I don't think race affects me, or I don't, you know, just stuff like that, or say, I am yeah. part of the human race, 
those sort of quotes. <laughs> like it, it Ideal, idealism, idealistic. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like you, you're saying that because it it doesn't affect you. Mm. Like you're saying, you can say I see everybody as a human race, but we gotta know there's a problem out there. Yeah, and there are people who are being dehumanized. Yeah, and you know, I mean, no, it's not just what they say, but it's the way they say it mm. or the way they speak. Yeah, it's a really reductic, uh, reductive and simplistic point and of like, view. It's actually interesting. I mean, you're saying about there are people who say that and often does it affect them, but there are other people who are prominent who do who it does affect and say things like that. I mean, is a, is a, um, I don't know if he's a motivational speaker or a poet. It's kind of somewhere between the two of those. There's a guy called Prince EA. Mm. I'm not sure if you've come across him on YouTube or anything like that. Um, he does, he's does. he got a poem that's basically saying, I am not black. Mm. And it's like this big motivational speech thing that's like six or seven minutes long and it's got all these really swanky images and he does the thing that Americans do really well, which is he speaks with this really emotive voice and he makes you try <laughs> to feel a particular way. And I'm like, I'm black. Yeah, it's idealistic that, you know, we get to a point where we're post-colour and we're post-race, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. There's also people out there, you know, that I just don't really like as presenters, though. You know, mm. got a famous politician, Bill Carlson, or you got a famous presenter, CNN, Don Lemon. Mm. I just don't really like mm. the way they get about things. Facilitate the conversation. Yeah, and there's like, there's like every now and then you get like some black guy <coughs> boxing and speaking what they're all saying. It's kind of like... Find a black man in the KKK almost. Fox News. <laughs> yep. But like Bill O'Reilly, who's obviously long gone from um, public politics, yeah. Fox News. I think it was April mm. since he's been gone. Um, probably because I think it was something to do with some sexual harassment issues they had yeah. something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he was really bad. He used to always say, he used to always depict black people as lazy, need to get up and yeah. say that the 56% of the black people are educated yeah. compared to the 89% of the white people that are educated and it's black people's fault mm. in general. Yeah. Um, not went, realising that sort of talk was the reason why yeah. we have that issue. And you know he, he raged a big war against rap culture, right? Bill O'Reilly. Did he? Yeah. Um, you should do some research. He cost um, Ludacris a lucrative endorsement with Pepsi. Really? Yeah. And Ludacris actually cites him in the lyric That's because of it. Yeah. It is Ludacris, <laughs> literally. Um, yeah, Bill O'Reilly. Uh, He's, yeah, but his new replacement on that same time show, Carlson Tucker, mm. it's actually worse. Why? Mm. That's it's miserable. That's <coughs> um, me. Um, yeah, it's those sort of comments though that make it appear privileged white people take it off for granted. They don't realize that they say color doesn't affect, like you know, they don't believe in, in colors or human race, uh, different races because for them it's kind of like when that they they don't realize how lucky they are. Yeah, but there's a privilege in that. There's a privilege in me saying I don't believe I don't believe in color. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I've not. I don't believe in race because I've not experienced the negative impact of my race. Therefore, even even to speak it vocally, it's like saying you need to do something about that. You need to now come along to my think, way of thinking. When people say I believe everybody has equal or very similar opportunities in life, it's just that's just not. True. Not true, it's not true. But it's it's really common, but people that say that, like, I feel like we need to open up our arms to them a bit more. Yeah. Like, I feel like me being on the left, and a lot of people on the left, we tend to just, like, that's Echo wrong, chamber. that's wrong, that's wrong, yeah. But, like, I think we engage discussion, engage debate, mm. and fine. And that's why we've got this sort of podcast coming in. Um, but generally, that's kind of what I have to say about when people say stuff like that. Um mm. I think no, it's, it's it's a really interesting one. I think often it doesn't come. It comes from people who mean well. 
That's one thing I will say. I don't think that um, the vast majority of people that I've heard say things like, I don't believe in colour or I don't mm-hmm. see colour. Um, I don't believe that there's any malice in it. Because, for it's example, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, I've got a brother who's from Darlington. Um, again, a brother who's black like me. Lighter skinned and more handsome and more built. That's a whole other conversation. Um, You're pretty built. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully Leon doesn't listen to this, so I can, I can. He hears me picking him up. Um, him. So Leon's Leon's last girlfriend. Um, I remember going out for a night out. They came down from Darlington to Manchester. We went out for a night out, and we were in the back of the taxi heading home. We were a little bit drunk, and I just remember her. You know, they were talking about how they met and stuff like that, and she was talking about the racism that exists up in the northeast. And she was like, when I first met Leon, I didn't see a black man. And both me and Leon, like, wow. she didn't say it in a negative way at all. Wow. But me and Leon were in the back of this taxi, absolutely crying our eyes out with laughter. And Leon was like, you didn't see me as a black man. I'm really upset. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? What did you see me as? If it, did you see a white guy? What did, wow. what, what did you see? Clearly brown. Yeah. Like, must, what did must, you see? Must have been brown there. Yeah, like, you all know yeah. brown people are most good looking out there. Exactly. But I guess the point she was she was trying to make at the time is that actually his colour wasn't a consideration. She just saw a guy that she was attracted to and seemed like a nice guy and yeah. a funny guy and whatever. Yeah. Um, so the thing is that you wouldn't the reason why like I think I put because you wouldn't see a black person start saying that, oh I don't see race. I don't see colour. No. The reason why I, I wouldn't say it or and most black people wouldn't say it, right? Yeah, mm. but most people of color wouldn't say it, mm. is because it does affect them. Yeah, like you, like it, it affects us more. But like cultural isolation, for instance, mm. when you're in that minority, you're reminding of you're reminded of it every day. Absolutely, you're reminded of it every day that you're from that 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 race. Yeah, almost absolutely, and I think. You know, we shouldn't underestimate and we shouldn't overlook the remnants of slavery. Mm. You know, we're post-slavery. Yes, yes, we acknowledge that that slavery, as we know it, doesn't exist in that way. But the, rem- there, but, yeah, but the remnants of it, the remnants of it exist. You only have to visit um, large parts of Africa to see that in practice. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, again, a lot of writers who write about slavery and the impact of it say, you know, in historical terms, what was just over 200 years since slavery was abolished? In history, well, you're a historian... Um, aspiring historian 200 years in history is nothing right no not much (laughs) it's not a great deal of time you know no it's not yes it's and then then when you compare that to Jim Crow slavery didn't end with with, um, the abolition of slavery yeah still get going on with Jim Crow Jim Crow laws exactly so Jim Crow up to what 1968 up to what yeah about that about 1968 67 yeah 68 yeah 68 67 fact check me on that but yeah um, you know, so when you think from 68 to now, we're in 2017, what, 49 years? That's mum and dad, isn't it? <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> so That's nothing. It's, it's, not me. it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. So when you, when you think, I mean, my grand has been in this country since the 1950s from Jamaica, but if she would have moved to America rather than to England when she left Jamaica, she, my grand would have lived under Jim Crow. Yeah. It, it is pretty good. It's wacky, right? It's it, wacky. It is, it is pretty insane. Um, mm. Like, it's kind of funny how, like, people come in, you see these sort of things, how people come into workplaces and, and come to schools and tell you how to behave in certain ways. But the thing is, they're not, especially in schools and workplaces, people, you're told how to behave. Mm. You're not told how, or 
you're not told how and why you should feel a certain way, which is much more powerful. When you're told to behave in a certain way, it means, yes, you can be a racist, but when you come to work, don't be racist. Go home and be racist. <coughs> yeah. And, like, that's not right. No. I think there needs to be a great understanding from, you know, a very higher and lower level of... Hmm. Yeah, and uh, you made the point, I think it goes right back to education. Mm. And again, maybe we should do another podcast on education. I think we should do that because I think, how can you change? I mean, the best, in my opinion, and again, this is probably scientifically, yeah, it is scientifically proven because they say that um, the ideology, the uh, beliefs, the values that a child is brought up with between the ages of zero and six pretty much determine what type of adult that person will become, right? That's what I read Mm -hmm. somewhere. The first six years and the most vital years of a child's life. How can a child be trained to understand race, be trained to understand class, be trained to understand gender, or, or be asked of, uh, to have those qualities as an adult if they're not um, engaging with that discourse mm-hmm. <coughs> from a younger age, from you know as younger age as possible. Also, like on a note about how and where it comes from and why we feel a certain way. The interesting point, Carla, very viral video on you know social media platforms, but doesn't mean you've seen it. Mm-hmm. But I've actually not watched the most viewed. YouTube video, so if people haven't seen it, it's fair enough. But I recommend it, seeing Akala take on the lead of the EDL. Yes, like short clip. Tommy Robinson. Yep, and he just sort of sums him talking about how racism comes from a very higher level. Yeah. It comes from top down rather than bottom up. Um, and yeah, just, I think that's just really important to remember, but... So that's, but that's critical race theory. But exactly, that's, <laughs> in, that's in what I was talking about today. That's nutshell. exactly what I was talking about, yeah, how it comes from there. And like, I wanted to ask you, Reeves, you know a lot more about this than I do. Um... I, it's not my topic of expertise, I'm not going to pretend it is. Um, like, what sort of things can we change in short? In an ideal world, you could do anything you want to the world. What would you change? Would you change people's attitudes? Would you change the structure? Would I think you... it's a combination of those things. I think that naturally, that once the attitudes change, the structures will change because we'll see the folly of it. We'll see that actually mm-hmm. um, these these systems, these institutes, these structures are self-serving. Um, and, 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 you know, they're, they're oppressing of the majority Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the benefit and in favour of the few um, but again it's easier said than done what I would also say and again this is something I, I guess in many ways I'm a realist um, I think about what small actions and steps can we take as a people what, what is practical for us to do that will eventually move towards that change in attitude mm-hmm. and the simple thing is call it out you know there's, a, there's a, a hashtag that I use which is called call out season mm-hmm. you probably might have seen it when I post if I'm sending for someone on Facebook or whatever mm-hmm. Call it out. Let's call a spade a spade. You know, we call it out. We if, if I engage in a discussion with you and I say, well, here's why your viewpoint's racist or here's why it's wider than mark, and that person isn't um, taking on board that presented mm-hmm. uh, viewpoint, and it's well documented, it's well researched, there's, there's some weight behind the point that's being made, and they don't get it. Mm-hmm. I'm calling it out for what it is. Yeah, like... I completely agree with you. Right, really. But are you optimistic for the next few generations? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that I'm really excited about the next wave. I think of young people I'm, coming through. Yeah, I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm I'm worried that I I think even though attitudes are changing, I don't I'm not so convinced. It's changing quick enough. That I'm not so convinced that attitude will change the structures that are in place quick mm-hmm. enough. Like you say, mm-hmm. like at the moment, Donald Trump's in power and people want to go back 
so the segregation to jump to Jim Crow era. Yeah, but, but also, but if you don't want to go back to Jim Crow era, you want to go back, you know, just a few years ago. Am I wrong? Because a few years ago will lead you back to Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, and I think we need to see a radical change mm. in the whole system. Like, I think if you start saying, "Oh, let's go back to what it was a couple of decades ago," let's do that. Yeah. Then in a couple of decades, time gonna have Donald Trump again. We're gonna do reverse it. Again. Yeah, that's what. We, what's it? Uh, we learn from history. What Hamid? The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Um, <laughs> that's George Hegel. Yes. Um, pre-Marxist. But yeah, so that's been the first podcast of Alt Truths. Hope that talking about this topic just not just raises awareness because that's such a, a cliche phrase, but kind of like stimulates some discussion. Yeah. Stimulates discussion. Um, and just kind of illuminate some of the struggles that people have to have experienced in their yeah. life and people are experiencing. Yeah. And like, we need to see people. I think we, I think it's an important part for us to recognise that people are suffering and see people are suffering. But also, more importantly, see people that who, who have suffered in the past and just mm. learn from it. Absolutely. As yeah. a historian, I'm passionate about that. And that's why we've got Critical Race Theory. Yeah. So. Yep. Let us know your thoughts if you agree. Give us five star rating if there's such thing as this. Whether you think it was a five star podcast or not. Yeah. If you're not going to give it a five star, please don't. Just, just don't rate it. Um, yeah, just, <laughs> just don't rate it, bro. Don't hate um, me, man. Yeah, hit us up. Right, yeah. Tweet us. Um, we'll put all of our details in there. You can find me at Therese I. Williams on Twitter. Yeah, I, have you got I, Twitter, Hamid? I need to make one. I'm okay. not going to lie. Cool. Uh, so, um, I might yeah. have one, but I forgot what it's called. Okay. We'll, we'll edit that Twitter handle in for you, Hamid. That's, that's really straightforward. Well, it's pretty in the description. I'll sort it out. Cool. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks.